tonight, uh, before we get going, I, we have some a little bit of flexibility tonight because I wanted to leave a bit of room if there are any takers for those of you that may have done. I, I need to kind of know numbers first, and then we're either going to do it out loud or we're going to do it in groups or something. But at the beginning of the course, I suggested that you take some time to explore one of those ethical questions. How many of you were able to do that and came with something suitable for maybe a three or four minute conversation or presentation or discussion of some sort? You just put up your hands if you have something prepared along those lines tonight. Oh, no, I think you asked me about another question, right? Yeah, so as long as, yeah, an ethical, an ethically related question. So Joyce has something. Is there anyone else that has something prepared? Okay, yeah, that's no problem. Other, anybody else? If you put up your hand and say yes, I'm not going to make you stand up and present to the class. I just want to know if somebody did. I did never really ate those hands on one. You did? Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, Google it. Quick, Google it. Okay. Okay, so for the two of you that um, uh, did do a little bit of work, um, I think I know you both well enough that probably putting you in two groups is pointless. So do you want to just take a minute or two or three minutes, however long you want, to sort of tell us what question you were interested in? Just maybe throw out a few points uh, of discovery, and then we'll just open it up for any Q&A. And we'll spend maybe not more than about 15, 20 minutes total doing this, and then we'll move into our topic for tonight. Is that okay? So Joyce, uh, you're a teacher by trade, so you can help help us out by going first, maybe. Okay. Um, well, the one uh, topic I was discussing with you before about the remedial segregation and hmm. uh, the I forget the right letters now. Uh, the GE, okay, ethics of genetic engineering. Oh yes, yeah. Okay. He just bought a big cruiser and he was really looking forward to retirement. And his nurse said to him, Do you realize that you're shaking when you're working when you think of working on a patient? And he didn't realize it. And then he mm. started to check up on himself and he found out he was. So he got on the internet and he, he found out everything he could and he went for testing and he was contemplating cholera. Okay. Yes. And the one daughter, one of his daughters was tested, mm -hmm. and she carried the genetic part. Mm -hmm. So she and her husband realized this, but they decided, they lived in California, and they decided that they would have this genetic engineering. And uh, they, the doctors were able to withdraw the DNA from Huntington's from the fertilized egg, and mm. I guess in two 
teacher did. Okay. And the first time, of course, it didn't work. But the second time, they delivered a beautiful little baby girl, and she, they, she would have carried this. Mm. But they extracted that from the fertilized egg. Imagine something microscopic on it. And um, she was born just beautiful, and she, she doesn't have the genetic factors, and, of course, she can't pass it on. Right. Okay. So when you're looking at that, this is a case where okay. it's so beneficial. Right. A lot of people might not agree mm -hmm. in that case. Okay. Yeah. So you made a comment, um, just curious what you meant by it, when you said the first time it didn't work. Uh, the, ba uh, the baby was, was uh, fed into it. Oh, okay. So they were able to successfully extract the gene, implant the fertilized egg, and sometime during gestation, or did the... I'm not sure because um, okay. you just didn't really go into detail. Okay. Because my initial thought there was obviously it would raise a huge ethical dilemma if you had to sort of wipe out two or three to get one. Yeah. Well, this uh, she had two. They did the spike and they removed the, the, uh, the DNA from both, but the first, the first one, right. whatever happened. Okay. So, um, obviously, I think all of us would agree that's cool for the parents. Any biblical notions, though, that might factor in that would raise yellow flags? Maybe things that you were thinking about or others might want to contribute to the mix? Well, I think it was a healing factor for the family because they were just devastated. The, the second adult one also had the gene. Right. When we went to her funeral a few years ago, just to see the two sons walking up that aisle, oh, they were... They yeah. were so sad, but now that um, if this can be done, it's yeah. eliminated in that family. Okay. And I'm sure the medical field has, has learned something from it. Sure, yeah. It certainly has brought more excitement. And uh, it kind of eased the risk of the <coughs> family they had. Okay. But when I think about that, how do, how do they get to that point to do that and to fetus? How do they get to that point, the experimental phase of that? Um, do they have hmm. to use and discharge a lot of lead and a hmm. lot of that? There could be a problem there. Yeah, that's a good question. That yeah. point to get them to that, because there is a lot of things going on with the abortions and what they do with those. And hmm. So I don't know. I, don't, I have no clue. Good question, though. It's a good question. Yeah. Nancy? What's the dilemma that we have uh, God is creator of all, mm. and so life is in his hands. He's the one that decides if it goes forward or not, mm -hmm. if you use that particular plant. Who had the right to master, mm. you know, who has picked the wisdom or who has given individuals who are roaring ahead and have come with new discovery, new ways of it. So my son's probably trying to do dairy feeding okay. from the dad. They didn't Got it, you've got it. You're going down. You meant 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's good comments as well to factor in. Glenn? Okay, yeah, yeah, good question. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So my thinking on this is that um, when it comes to ethics, right, you have, you have two levels of ethics. You have uh, individual ethics, and then you have corporate ethics. Now you might say, well, ethics are ethics or ethics. Well, I, I, I get that. I mean, right is right, wrong is wrong. But the decisions of, we'll just draw a bunch of people here, represent the corporate. The decisions of an, uh, the individual in a specific instance like that, if you're just looking at that person, that family, that scenario, it's like, yeah, it kind of makes sense, more or less. But some of you are actually raising this question. Some of you are staying down here. Some of you are knowingly or unknowingly, you're actually jumping into this category, which is worth jumping into. And what you're essentially asking is, what are the implications of individual choices for the corporate whole? So let's say, and I'm not suggesting this is the case, but let's say all of us here would applaud the birth of this child without the Huntington's disease and say that was a good move, good choice, good decision, way to go. Then on a corporate level, maybe a, another question that we've sort of raised is, well, where does it stop? What if I don't like brown eyes? What if I want a designer baby? God's given us the skills, why not go with it? Um, so you see how our individual choices do sometimes spill over, especially when it comes to technologies into broader ethical questions. And that's where the, the, the historical line is the slippery slope. Now, the slippery slope can be a bad argument too because there's a lot of things that could be considered a slippery slope that aren't. But at, at least we have to think about this question. How do my individual choices affect future generations, broader ethical dilemmas, so forth and so on? So I'm hearing both of those, and that's the tension in this room. Do we go with this and say, you know, right on? Or do we look at more of the corporate implications of this? So Adriana raised a corporate question. Glenn raised an individual question. Nancy raised a corporate question. Joyce raised an individual question. 
and they're they're almost like two different tiers, and they're they can be very difficult to sort through. Mark, did you have a comment? Now, maybe the ladies can help me here. I know that it's, is it an option or? Because if I was an older woman, they, they suggested it. Okay. Susie, weren't you? Right. Maybe not as widespread, but nevertheless, that's, that's in Canada too. Yeah. But you see, it's, it's interesting because, I mean, we would all kind of be, uh, uh, I mean, we're naturally revolted by the, the even the, the concept of why do you need to know or if, if I mean, yeah, maybe it would be helpful to know just to prepare, but um, certainly the Christian worldview wouldn't permit or allow us to terminate the pregnancy based on that knowledge. So then do you really need to know and what's the point of knowing? But in a culture that raises it, raises a question not so they can help you prepare educationally or get a good support system into place, but in order to terminate. That's a huge problem for us. But it is in the same realm as this question here. So I have a, a friend who, uh, same, same scenario, Huntington's in the family. Some siblings are tested, some aren't. Um, so some are uh, plus, some are some are negative, uh, major, major psychological, emotional um, reaction from the, one of the children that tested positive. Very, very difficult. That knowledge has not been helpful. Very counterproductive. You know, it's interesting that we all know we're going to die. We just don't know how, and we don't know when. Well, you're never going to know when, but nowadays, there might be somewhat of a notion as to how. And I'm not real sure I want to know that. <laughs> I mean, I may have some good guesses. Uh, you know, you look at family history, and if you have this or that in your family, okay, well, probably going to go out with one of these two things. But how do you really know? You don't know. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. Have you guys seen the Dropbox, by the way? 
Yeah. So this is Korean, right? South Korean. But um, we witnessed this in China. Well, we didn't. Well, we witnessed it in part, but we also heard a lot of stories in part. And I can't remember. Glenn's been to China with me. I don't remember. Did you and I visit the orphanage? Yeah. Okay. Well, I Okay, so same idea, like a Christian lady who's opened this sort of off-the-record off orphanage because kids are being discarded. In China, obviously, there's a lot of uh, poverty, and not everybody would even have the option of getting that kind of testing. So um, it's, it's, it's not uncommon for parents to abandon their children on the streets or something after they've been born if they showed, um, if they had Down syndrome or... One little fella, I think, was perfectly fine, but I think he was missing the top half of an ear or something, yeah, something like that. Yeah, it was something just, it was like a, a physical blemish, but it had nothing to do with anything else. He was abandoned. And and you have, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, you know, that, that flows out of a godless worldview and this notion that it's kind of in the same vein. I don't want to make it the exact same scenario, but this sort of this idea of picking and choosing what kind of a kid you want. And we just need to be a little bit careful about that as much as, I mean, which person in this room wouldn't rather have a fully healthy child than a disabled child? Of course, and which of us wouldn't somewhat grieve for a friend that had a disabled child? I mean, there's unique challenges to that. Of course we want everyone to be healthy. But we just kind of kind of be, you know, we do have to sort of uh, somehow find that balance between taking advantage of modern technologies and medical procedures um, uh, and at the same time, you know, to coin, uh, well, to borrow Nancy's phrase, not, not playing God. Yeah, that's a difficult balance. Did you ever, did you ever hand it, Brian? Or you wanted yeah, to? Just, just to kind of track it, like a personal perspective, we have been fortunate to be able to do that in the extreme at East Hope. And so for us to try and be able to do that while we have kids that are not necessarily deprived of those basic services. Mm. And so it's, it's terrifying news, right? But then it's like, well, I guess the biggest concern, but like very, not very common way to experience that, which is the kind of assessment you need, like who assesses you, like your, your carrier. Okay. That's why we end up having that more time is when we have to get people into all kinds of stuff and we're seeing that and so how are we going to manage that kind of stuff and my kids are seeing two weird things that don't usually creep up how does it are we going to even know when we turn up at my yeah. career yeah. or have a lot of documented data and mm -hmm. so you know you just watch them get sick and grow up with this you know potentially devastating disease and you don't know A it's going to affect this way or the other and you know you need to be able to have Sure. And even from having children going forward, you know, yeah. you ask the question, you know, like, like what happens when a child grows older and what are the consequences of being fully disabled? All right. And so it's just, it's, it, it's a nice idea, but sometimes it doesn't really, and it's kind of like what you're doing, like saying, you know, like, it's a nice idea, but sometimes it doesn't really bring you much forward mm -hmm. <laughs> or help with the long term. Just one other thing, and then we'll let Susie kind of move us into another discussion, but, um, I mean, I'm not a physician, so I can't speak to the specifics of how Down syndrome is tested. But I do know that um, from personal experience that sometimes a doctor might throw out an idea to you 
uh, as to a problem you might have with a child that turns out to not be a problem at all. And I mean, Susie and I, of course, weren't presented with this information in the context of an abortion, but I think at least at least two of our kids, when they did ultrasounds, had like lesions or something on their brains that um, I think I think our, our oldest, as I, as I recall, and I don't know, maybe it was Josiah and Simon or Josiah and Levi, but the first, pardon me? Four of the five. Oh, four of the five, okay. So especially with your first one, you're like, what? Lesion, what is that? And then, uh, you know, you go in for the next round or whatever. And, oh, they're gone. Everything's fine. It must just be whatever else. It's nothing. It's like, well, if I, if I was a person that thought abortion was an option, I might have said, this kid's going to have mental disabilities. He's out of here. Um, so, I mean, even in that regard, the, the scientific method is not accurate because none of our kids have any problems along those lines. And something really minor, it doesn't relate to uh, the abortive question, but I remember Susie was r very much encouraged to be induced for Josiah. This kid is huge. You, you want to hardly be able to push this kid out. I mean, he's going to be a monster. We measured him in the ultrasound. He's huge. Okay, let's get to the hospital. He comes out seven pounds, four ounces. Oh, I'm sorry, he's just really long. Surprise, surprise. So, you know, th it's not always accurate. Sometimes the information you're presented with may push you in a certain direction, you're, and you, you act on information that's inaccurate, is my point. So you got to be careful about that, too. And, um, you know, also think about the healing touch of God and how God can overcome certain things and factor in the blessings of um, the disabled in our mixed. I, I was blessed on Sunday after the service as I was in this room, and we had uh, four adults here that are deaf and uh, being able to communicate with them through sign language interpreters and hearing their stories, all believers. And, you know, there's you've probably had times like that too when you're around people that have various physical or sometimes mental disabilities. And they're, again, you're not going to wish it upon them, of course, but there's certain blessings that flow out of that and humbling factors. I mean, I know David has a son with autism and I have a brother that was severely brain damaged in a car accident who's now a disabled adult. And there are blessings that come out of that as painful as it is at the time. Um, I mean, my brother that goes to this church was saved as a result of my other brother's catastrophic accident. And could God have chosen another method? Of course he could have. But that's a blessing that's come out of that. And so you just, you never really know. Um, and I'll say this carefully because I don't know the mind of God. Um, but you never know what blessings you may be withholding from people by maybe taking actions that you may interpret as playing God. So at the same time, we're all appreciative of the modern medical technologies we have. They're from China? Yeah, okay. From China. She had a son. Okay. But she never registered. So right. the son is living with and couldn't even be in China. Uh, yeah. Okay, and we have yeah. to leave it like that. You guys all heard they just changed the law there, right? Yeah. yeah. Now the law has always been two children for rural areas. Um, but more of the industrialized areas it's one. And there's certain exceptions. 
Yeah, and there's certain exceptions in the past where if you're one, I think if you're like a single child of a single child and your spouse is a single child of a single child, you can apply to F2 or something, but now they're kind of opening it up a bit. But Okay, well, hey, it's not the, my intention is not to lock all these things down, but to, to get you thinking a little bit about them too. So Susie, what did you want to share? Like breast augmentations or that kind of thing. Okay. Um, and balance that out, right? 
So did Joan Rivers overdo it, or was that within? <laughs> she had the money. <laughs> she was very charitable. So. The witch, sorry? Oh, yeah, from the cheap, like, Botox, yeah. Sure. Just shuffling them around. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, when you get a haircut, you're, I mean, you're in a sense altering your appearance. Braces, yeah. And in our, what, what we would assume in our generation um, would not have been put up with in certain previous generations. And then in other generations before that, no problem. You know, so it, it kind of, there's an ebb and flow to it uh, in, uh, depending on the culture you're in. But, um, Yeah, so if a person had a weight problem because uh, maybe an injury or something that threw off certain hormonal functions, um, which of course would be the majority, everybody can't claim that one, but uh, that may be a little different scenario than someone who is just very undisciplined and doesn't want to learn the discipline and has a procedure like that done. and. And uh, yeah, so so any uh, what other comments? What other factors, biblical notions, common sense arguments might we want to bring into this question of cosmetic surgery? So many what? Sorry. Oh, oh, Miss Universe. When they're 15. 15. Wow. Even not completely develop their body, but hmm. change. It's sad. Hmm. And it's a big business. It's a big business. Many people travel there. Miss Universe is from Venezuela? <laughs> no. I don't even know. Really? I didn't even know that. Really? Did you ever try out for it? Did you ever? <laughs> <laughs> She would have won, of course. Yeah. Yeah. David was a judge, and that's how they came in that. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, young children, body image issues, that could be quite dangerous. I don't think you have to have a master's of social work to pick that one out. What else? Any other factors? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, that's the where do you where do you put the brakes on? Mm-hmm. It's it's big big business too. I mean, we need to we need to think about that. I mean, most other I mean, physicians get paid good money, but um, other forms of um, surgery are sort of like you know, thank God for these people. You know, there's a, even though you're getting paid a good dollar, there is a sort of a motivation by a desire to help humanity along and whatnot. But a lot of this kind of stuff is, again, with the exception, maybe people with deformities or uh, deformities from surgery or whatnot, a lot of it's just plain, well, big business. And I mean, not that we're necessarily opposed to big business, but it's it's a little different motivation than historically why people went into practicing medicine. Jordan? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Or we're trying to fight the realities of death. Yeah. And I mean, there's probably a motivation in all of us to fight them a little bit. But again, it goes to motivation, like how much fighting are you going to do? And, you know, we throw it out in a joking way, but frankly, Joan Rivers looked ridiculous. Because <laughs> everybody knew it. It's like, really? Like, come on. And it, it wasn't just because maybe the surgery wasn't the, la- the latest and the greatest, but because we all know how old she was. And it, it just, it looked, it almost looked, uh, and, and this is just my view, you can disagree, but I felt sad for her. I thought she was making a fool out of herself, to be honest. And uh, because of the extreme nature of it. But if my child had a you know, big birthmark right here, I, I'd probably pay to have it removed as well. And I'd probably spend a lot of money doing it. Because of the nature of life in a broken world, that child is going to be made fun of. They're going to be stared at. People are going to point them out in a grocery store and yada, yada, yada. And yeah, maybe there's some redemptive element in that. But um, in a broken world, there's probably not much. And uh, so certainly we we might want to deal with that. Um, You know, again, at the same time, uh, there's... uh, you know, where's the limit? I mean, I have crooked teeth here. I don't really care. Uh, my mom's desperate for me to get braces. I couldn't care less. But if my teeth were growing over my lip, <laughs> I'm not going to go get braces and preach with a lisp for three years. So, um, you know, the rest of my good looks sort of counterbalance. You know, <laughs> but and if that's not true, my confidence does. But uh, you know, different people have different standards too. You got a little slightly crooked teeth off, you know, it's a $6,000 braces. One of our, our, our dentist was trying to talk us into getting braces for one of our children. I'm like, should we, shouldn't we, should we, shouldn't we, you know. I mean, you can always get it. My mom got braces when she was in her 60s. So I'm thinking, okay, I think I'd rather just let them pay for it if they want it. <laughs> but I'm thinking, should I, shouldn't I? And uh, so we went through the preliminary assessment and they came back and it's like, whatever, five grand. And we're just, should we, shouldn't we? And anyway, in our life group at the time, 
Lisa DeSantis is there, and she's a dental hygienist. And just one day out of the blue, she says to my one child, oh, you have really nice teeth. We're like, there's our answer. We're not getting them done. <laughs> but it's, it's a question. Um, you know, it is, I think the financial component is worth thinking about. You're going to spend five grand on five kids. That's 25 grand. And you think of other necessities and needs. I mean, it's, it's not the only question, but it's a question. Um, and you got to look at testimony. I think you got to look at testimony because you're just, you, when you do body modification, then you got to, if it's something that people would notice, you got to ask, well, what would that communicate to people? And if it's something like removing, yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's a brutality to it, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, Maryland, Maryland's point is, is uh, it is, it's part of a broader question. It's, it, it, it relates to satisfaction with life and whether you understand the implications of being made in the image of God and issues of self-worth. We use self-esteem in a very loose way. It's not necessarily grounded in a biblical notion of, being made in the image of God, being precious to God, and and um, these are questions we need to be thinking about as Christians because they do have bearing upon um, uh, you know a lot of other notions. It's guys, the, the issue is usually not the issue. It's what does that issue tell you about, or what does that choice tell you about you, your view of yourself, your view of God, your view of purpose, these kinds of questions. If you can answer those questions properly and biblically, then you're a much safer ground to go and get done whatever you need to get done. But if you're not even sure about those questions, you might want to figure them out first. Uh, because you may even later regret the decisions you made, not because the outcome is necessarily bad, but because you realize there was something in you that you weren't aware of, some <coughs> deficiency. And if, for instance, a person runs out and gets cosmetic surgery because they think it's going to make, you know, it's going to radically alter their life and they're going to feel better about themselves and they spend $10,000 doing that and six months later they're feeling the same way as they did before. That's a major letdown and a lot of money out the door. So these are some things to, for us to be thinking about. Okay, very good. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, presenting us with, um, with those uh, dilemmas. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to move into a, um, a, the final discussion tonight is going to be on the ethics of civil disobedience. How, how many of you have thought through this a little bit? Civil disobedience? Um, basically, when can I...
disobey someone who's in a position of authority. Now, I think this might have come up here and there, but I want to be a little more systematic about it. And our time is limited, so we're not going to get too far. But here's, uh, here's just some thoughts for you, and, and you'll have to take notes yourself because I wasn't even sure if we'd get to this tonight. But um, the ethics of civil disobedience. So first of all, let's define it. So civil disobedience is a symbolic, and this is out of the Encyclopedia Britannica, by the way, this definition. Civil disobedience is a symbolic or ritual violation of the law rather than a rejection of the system as a whole. So you need to differentiate between someone who is practicing civil disobedience and someone who is, what's the word? An anarchist or doesn't like authority, period. So civil disobedience is where someone is living within a system, but on a particular issue, they exercise symbolic or actual disobedience. The civil disobedient finding legitimate avenues of change blocked or non-existent sees himself as obliged by a higher extra-legal principle to break some specific law. So let's just keep our conversation within those boundaries. We're not just talking about some guy that says, I don't like speed limits. Why? Because I like to drive my car fast. We're talking about someone who is motivated by some moral or extra-legal principle. So this could apply to people of religious faith or not, who break the law in one specific juncture because they feel they've exhausted all other measures. And we could point to some famous examples of that. So let's look at some, some, uh, some examples from history. So we'll go right, right back to Exodus 1. And there we have the Hebrew midwives who are part of an ethnic group that chose to live in Egypt. And while they were enslaved, they refused to obey Pharaoh's commands to kill all the Hebrew baby boys as they were born. Now, what caused them to do that? A higher moral law. That, that's not to say they were breaking all of Pharaoh's laws, but this one, we're not going to listen. Or Obadiah, this is 1 Kings 18.4, Obadiah refused to participate in Jezebel's plans to kill off the prophets by hiding a hundred in caves. Well, God put Ahab and Jezebel in power and uh, they said some certain things needed to be done and Obadiah said no way and he, hid, he, he broke the law. Rahab refused to turn over foreign spies to authority, even though she was a foreigner herself, and the authorities that were governing the city she was living in were foreigners and part of her people group. That's uh, Joshua 2.14. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to obey their king's command to bow down to an idol, Daniel chapter 3. The early Christian church in Acts chapter 4 refused to obey the government's command not to preach the gospel. Moving forward several centuries, uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, from, who lived from uh, 1817 to 1862, published a lecture entitled, quote, Resistance to Civil Government in 1849. And he argued that there was a higher law than the civil law and that the higher law must be obeyed even if this penalty ensues. So his resistance at the time uh, pertained to the government's endorsement of slavery and what he called its imperialistic war against Mexico. And to protest, he chose to refuse to pay his taxes. 
So there's just one way of doing it. That was his choice. Mohammed Gotni, uh, sorry, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, 1869 to 1948, developed the practice of non-violent civil disobedience, which ultimately forced Great Britain to grant independence to India in 1947. So he was living in India under the uh, when it was part of the uh, colonial uh, regime. And um, here are the rules. He actually wrote rules down for... Um, kind of hemming in civil disobedience. So here's his rules. There's uh, seven of them. Sorry, nine of them. A civil resistor will harbor no anger. So he's, you know, this, of course, he's Hindu. But um, he, did not, he did not think this should be motivated by anger. Uh, number two, he will suffer the anger of the opponent. So he's prepared to suffer the consequences. Number three, in doing so, he will put up with the assaults of the opponent, never retaliate, but he will not submit out of fear for punishment or the like or any any order given in anger. Number four, when a person in authority seeks to arrest a civil a resistor, he will voluntarily submit to the arrest and he will not resist the attachment or removal of his own property, if any, when, he is sought to, when it is sought to be confiscated by the authorities. So you notice this is a pass, very much of a pacifist response. If a civil resistor has any property in his possession as a trustee, he will refuse to surrender it, even though in defending it he might lose his life. He will, however, never retaliate. So if it's his own property, give it up. If he's holding it as a trustee for someone else, he cannot give it up. Number six, retaliation includes swearing and cursing, so you're not allowed to do that. Number seven, before a civil resistor, uh, a civil resistor will never insult his opponent. Number eight, he will not salute the Union Jack, nor will he insult it or officials in Indian or English. And number nine, in the course of the struggle, uh, if anyone insults an official or commits an assault upon him, a civil resistor will protect such officials or, or officials from the insults or attack even at the risk of his life. So those nine um, uh, points were taken out of an article on Wikipedia pertaining to civil disobedience. And apparently these are ones that Muhammad, uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi lived by and preached and promoted in his own civil disobedience against Britain. give you a few more examples. The Nuremberg trials, the principle of civil disobedience was, has achieved some standing in international law through the war crimes trials at Nuremberg after World War II which affirmed the principle that an individual may, under certain circumstances, be held accountable, listen to this, for failure to break the laws of his country. And that again comes from Encyclopedia Britannica. So if the, the Nazi, post-World War II, is being called a war criminal, he's like, I'm not a war criminal. Hitler's the appointed head of state. He told me I had to go slaughter these people. The Nuremberg trials determined that you can actually uh, be held accountable for at times failing to break laws that your country put into place if those are immoral laws, which is interesting. So it's actually, in a sense, promoting a certain form of civil disobedience under tyrannical regimes. How about conscientious objectors? How many of you have heard the term conscientious objector? What's your understanding of it? And give me an example, maybe. Glenn? 
in num because okay 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 and going back a little further world war ii um various christians yeah mennonites in world war one that's why they moved to the south americas so certain people groups thought that going to war under any circumstances was wrong so they either paid a fine performed some labor on behalf of the government moved out of the country or went to jail or whatnot so that's a conscientious objection Yeah, now do they have to, that's current, like present tense? Yeah. Now, I think they have to, do they have to, uh, I know in World War II you could, but you had to serve in some other non-violent capacity. Yeah, I, I don't know how far it goes back. I mean, basically, it was. The Quakers. Yeah, <laughs> 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 kind of like people that get all upset when they see dog fights, but they don't mind watching UFC. You know, they they hate they can't imagine two dogs drawing blood, but they don't mind two people pounding the tar out of each other and causing permanent damage. And, dif and well, I I would say UFC is immoral. You know, when you're when you're bringing permanent damage to someone else's body. That's a problem. I think both are immoral. But I find it interesting that people are all up in arms about two dogs who you know, are tearing at each other, but when two humans do, eh, it's their choice, whatever. Not a big deal. So we have people who have put this into practice by refusing to enlist, picketing, or fleeing from imposed war drafts. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, there's a movie I watched about him uh, recently called uh, what's the name of it? Sel Sel Selma. Yeah, that was his town, right? Yeah, so it's a snippet out of his life. So he's 1929 to 1968. He was America's most visible civil rights leader from 1955 until his assassination in 1968 and he advocated for nonviolent civil disobedience as a means of bringing about social change and he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize 1964 uh, anti-apartheid 1989 uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu um, advocated civil disobedience and several events um, these are vague in my memory because I was rather young, but I've heard of these. Purple Rain Revolt and the Cape Town Peace March helped defy uh, apartheid. Randall Terry, founder and director of um, Operation Rescue, is a nationally organized coalition of pro-life pastors and lay people that stage sit-ins around abortion clinics in an attempt to save the lives of unborn children. They believe that Christians are obliged to engage in nonviolent civil disobedience as a means of putting an end to abortion. And they have a website, iclnet.org. Environmental rights groups have violated various laws, including vandalism, trespass, tree and hunt sabotage, violence to save trees and reduce pollution. They believe that's a, a significant cause. Bible smuggling, 
is widely regarded as legitimate. I don't know if Muslims smuggle Qurans or not into China, but there may be a couple people in this room guilty of this thing. Uh, moral method of getting God's word into countries that ban Bible printing, distribution, or missionary work. So, those are some examples of civil disobedience from history and from the not-so-distant past. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So what I'm going to do, I want to uh, throw out a, a few scenarios to you, and then we'll take our break. So I'm just going to read through these, and, and then you, your mind's going to be spinning on break, and then you're going to come back and work with some of these. So let's say, number one, scenario number one, um, assuming all of you understand that abortion's a sin, a local abortion clinic murders 11 babies every day. As a member of your church's justice network, you've written letters, met with physicians, and addressed the media about the horrors of abortion. What do you do next? So I'm going to have this group in this general area. You're going to kind of come up with a bit of an answer for us. Okay. This group over here, five or so people. While vacationing in a foreign country, you see a police officer beating a blind man to death for breaking the country's anti-begging laws. You approach the officer, but they push you away, threatening to arrest you. What do you do? And, um, okay, so we'll take five more here, like Nancy, Jack, Glenn, Michelle, Susie, so you're going to be a group. Your country is attacked by a foreign army. Regardless of your personal views on war, young men in your church are conscripted to serve despite their pacifist views. Would you counsel them to serve? The, so regardless whether you're a pacifist or not, would you counsel them to serve contrary to their conscience or refuse at risk of imprisonment? And then um, we'll go Brian, Mark, maybe David. You guys will be a little bit smaller group. Uh, a new government get the new government gets greedy, and um, this isn't a prophecy. Okay, I'm just throwing it out there. And HST soars to 22 percent for no justifiable reason. If you want to make it more extreme, make it 88 percent. Okay, something that's unlivable, whatever the percentage is. All the businesses in town organize to ref and refuse to collect taxes. Let's assume you're a business owner. What would you do? And then the table at the back, you are all licensed ministers as of now. And you're being threatened with jail time for refusing to marry a same-sex couple. You graciously state that it's against your beliefs and offer to cancel your license to conduct marriages. The state responds that your position is against human rights and that by law you must perform the marriage if asked. So... Again, that's not the case here, but I'm just create the scenario. What would you do, or should you do? These are all, these should these should all be what should you do questions, not would you do. Okay. So in other words, you it's not what you might do is run away, but what should you do in these kinds of situations? Okay. And uh, we'll spend a little bit of time on that, and then it, uh, again, this could be a, like a two-class lecture. So I'm just going to then 
dive in and throw out a few passages and and um, suggest some governing principles that could inform these discussions. Okay, so uh, we'll take a few minutes for prayer and just for some fellowship with one another. Um, we have some prayer bulletins here and we'll distribute those and then uh, in a few minutes we can enjoy some refreshments together and then we'll we'll come back together in about 10 minutes from now and um, actually as soon as in about 10 minutes from now we just go right to your groups and start to discuss the question I'll just give you five to ten minutes in those settings okay just have one person from your group appointed as the spokesperson was good. <laughs> Never do that. You had two plates? No, it's not me. Okay, so let's begin with uh, group number one, and they're asking, they're wrestling with the question of um, the abortion clinic. That's your group, right? Okay, so what did you... We'll have to kind of move move pretty quick here, but uh, what was your basic conclusion? Uh, the basic conclusion was that um, we would um, pray for it, and after we pray for it, we will open a pregnancy center next door. <laughs> okay. And after that, we'll cut the electricity one day to water another day. <laughs> okay. Okay, so just for the sake of time, I'd love to have a conversation with each of these. Just do a straw poll here. How many would say I, I'd favor that plan? Hands, <laughs> hands up. Hands up. Okay. Just generally speaking, good plan? Bad plan, anybody? Anybody bad plan? Okay, looks like your plan's going ahead. Okay, um, vacationing in a foreign country, police officer beating a guy to death. Who's your spokesman, spokesman, spokeswoman? Okay, okay. Uh, all in favor? No. <laughs> So no personal involvement necessarily on a well, physical level, or if you think you can, okay. Well, you can. But you realize that his consequence. 
Okay. <laughs> Glenn's really thought this one through. Oh, <laughs> sure. Okay. Good point. Yep. Okay. All in favor of Glenn's plan? Anybody thinking? No, I'd rather go with another. Jordan, if this has it too, and put it over. Okay. <laughs> Anybody think maybe there's another plan that would work better? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you I think I mean I would feel very comfortable intervening physically if I felt I could actually get somewhere with it. Uh I mean I would still feel like I'd like to intervene physically if I couldn't, but then if I actually had time to think about it, I'd be like, well if if the best case scenario is there's two dead guys instead of one, then maybe Intervening isn't the greatest option. Well, the best thing you could do in our culture is, you know, it's on YouTube. All sideways. That's a cooler way of doing it. Okay. Why? Oh, sorry, Jenna here, 20 years younger than me. Turn it sideways. Okay. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Thirty? Uh, 30. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about, mom? What are you talking about, mom? So, number three, your country is attacked by a foreign army. Okay. If it was a just war, you mean? Oh, okay. What if it wasn't? Yeah. That's a, that's a scenario that maybe you didn't have a chance to really think. That's kind of what I was assuming because it's like your country is attacked by a foreign army. So, regardless, f from our perspective, if a foreign army attacked our country, it would always be unjust. So now the government's saying, well, you've got to fight this unjust army that's on our turf, but I don't, I don't fight. So that, that's kind of more the scenario. Well, I'm just saying, what would your... <laughs> but you're getting into consequences. How would you counsel the, a person who felt, assuming the war is, in a sense, just, you're defending your own country, but they felt that wasn't their right as a Christian? Did you just take it from a different angle? or? Yeah, well, we were thinking of it 
Yeah. For sure, from your angle. Like the attackers being unjust. And go. Okay. Okay. How many of you would uh, agree? Show of hands. Any no's? No? You're not sure? Oh, I was looking at Mark. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, okay, now. You would have a much higher percentage of people who are pacifists suddenly not be pacifists if the army's in your turf yeah. than if you're being asked to get on a boat and go somewhere else. Yeah. 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 I wonder if there's um, just with the younger generation, not everybody, but uh, men, a lot of young boys are not growing up with a really strong Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Well, their their life and their rules and games and things like that. It's all still built through, and their their mind are. Well, that's why there's a lot of uh, like in the U.S. Army, they hire a lot of guys who are good on the joystick to fly the drones. Yeah. Literally, they do. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Because they're actually, you know, the drones that are doing a lot of the. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, the exorbitant taxation question, you guys. Would you participate in the bo the business boycott just to refuse to pay taxes until things changed? Or? <laughs> 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 
Okay. <laughs> okay. So unless it's life or death, you wouldn't. Yeah, and then even then, it's like, do I want to die? Because I'm paying high taxes. Is this like a change to an exorbitant tax, or has it always been that way? In this so here's the, here's the, there's a couple things you need to understand about taxation. Um, in the Greco-Roman, taxation did not exist for the benefit of the common man, the person being taxed at all. So you have Rome ruling the world saying, you're going to give me 1% to 3% of your income. So that's the tax rate at the time of the New Testament, as 3%. That's the context within which Jesus says, render and receive that which is Caesar's, 1%. So very low compared to today, right? Now, we call it the same thing, but I get a kick out of people who talk about their net income and their gross income. Okay, you're, The reason why you pay taxes is because you exist. You're costing our country money to exist. You use our roads. You benefit from our police services, our medical, our medical on and on and on. It's, it's pre-extracted fees from you for your existence. That's very different than uh, someone just taking it, but you're not benefiting. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that, that taxes, taxes are really like bills. Just the government pays those bills on your behalf. That's what they are. Now, but let's assume you're in a country, and maybe Canada became like that, where you have a government that is taking money from you, calling it tax, but it is not for your benefit at all. It's not for the people. It's just for some one guy or whatnot. And we can get into conversation while the government overspends or there's abuses. Okay, but setting those things aside. It's tyrannical. They're just stripping money from the people for their own gain. And I'm just throwing out numbers here, right? In that situation... Is, would it be appropriate to say I'm not paying it? That's the basic question. I'm, I'm not paying it until things change. We got a bunch of business. And we're not paying it. Okay, yeah, that's true. There you go. So people just stopped paying and the government coffers went dry? Okay. Like under the table deals kind of thing as we call them. Okay, okay, interesting. Yes. Okay, so given that we don't really have even a proposal from you guys, all in favor? <laughs> okay, uh, sake of time, quickly going to number five. What do you do? Th th this is the jailed, potential jailed minister scenario for the refusing to do the gay marriage.
So your, your approach would be if, if they're going to jail me or they just want me to pr perform a civil service, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to view it as marriage. I'm not going to view it as marriage. I'm punished. Okay, but... Okay. Okay. And Don's like, no way either way. Okay. And Jordan, what was yours? Okay. Okay. And Pam was what? What was Pam's view? What was Pam? He wants to go to women's jail? <laughs> oh, oh th he's going to do anything possible to avoid women's jail. Okay. All in favor? No. <laughs> okay, so you got a whole mix there. That inc what was Pam's? She was for the women's jail. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to just distill it down. How many of you would... So how many of you, if you're in that situation, would say, look, I don't view it as marriage anyway. I'm just going to sign it, officiate. It's just a civil union. God doesn't recognize it. And the other option would be, I'm going to take a stronger stance. So option A. Who would pick option A? No, you're just going to sign the document. You're just providing a civil service. Yeah, avoid jail. Yeah, avoid jail. And option B, you wouldn't sign it. You go to jail. And Jack's not sure. He's no. ambivalent. Okay. Okay. So, real quickly, real quickly, I won't have time for any questions here, but real quickly, just some core issues and questions that I think will inform the discussion. Number one, these are formed as questions. The first question is, what is government? The second question will be, what is God's role in government? The third question will be, what is a Christian's relationship to government? So let's go with those. So number one, what is government? So we have theocracies, as in the old covenant nation where the God is ruling the nation. We have democracies, as in Canada. And we have authoritarian regimes. Those are the basic three kinds of government we have even in the world today. So good governments exist to limit anarchy and other aberrant outbursts in society. Governmental government structures, uh, one question coming out of that is um, just an acknowledgement of the fact that on one level, government is a result of the fall. If there was no fall, there would be no need for a government per se. Now that doesn't mean that there would be no need for order because there's indications in scripture that there's order among the angels. We have at least a couple of angels being called archangels. So it's not that order is a result of the fall or the need for order is a result of the fall, but technically speaking, government is a result of the fall. So is pastoring. It's a result of the fall. You wouldn't need pastors if there was no fall. You wouldn't need a lot of other roles. Uh, again, order's not bad. There's order in the insect world, Proverbs 30. There's order in the Trinity. Um, and we do know that in a fallen world, though, that this particular kind of order, namely government, is ordained by God, and it's put in place, we could read Romans 13, to keep people in check. And Paul actually advocates, you should kind of be afraid of your government if you're going to transgress. Therefore, a government is uh, more... Than a sociological reality. 
it is a sociological reality, but it's more than that. And it's a result of sin, but it's more than a result of sin. It's also a reflection of the creator and creation because it involves order. So there's different dimensions to government that are pluses and minuses. Uh, go good governments obviously carry the sword of justice. They defend the nation from oppression and attack. They defend the causes of the widow and the orphan. But in a fallen world, not all governments do that well. Some of them are out for their own benefit and own gain. So then the, the overarching uh, response to all of that in answer to the question, what is God's role in government, is this, this um, good news statement in Romans 13, 1, that God, in fact, ordains the government, which is good news. It doesn't mean that all governments are good. You can't read it that way. Sometimes Christians almost quote it as if it's good. No, they're not all good. And not all governments make the right decisions, and not all kings are, in God's moral will, the people that should be running. But in his sovereign will, in God's sovereign will, Every king, queen, prime minister, dictator is in place because it's part of God's sovereign will. Even though in God's moral will, and I don't know if you've ever been in my classes where we've dis differentiated between God's moral will and sovereign will, but um, uh, in God's moral will, not everybody who's ruling is necessarily the right person for the job, but in his sovereign will, they are. So God's moral will is basically what we're going to experience, the new heavens, the new earth. Everything's good, everybody's worshiping God, everyone's honoring the Lord and conducting themselves appropriately. But in a broken world, God also works sovereignly in light of the bad things that happen. What is a Christian's relationship to government, generally speaking, to be supportive and obedient? We could reference Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, Romans thirteen, six to seven, to submit to governing authorities, first Peter two, three to fourteen, Romans thirteen five. To be salt and light in a politi political sociological context. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. We are also called, uh, we are national citizens of governments, but 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 also reminds us what? We are also aliens and strangers. So there's a higher citizenship that we have that factors into the mix. 1 Peter 2, 12 also encourages us to maintain a good testimony. See, these are all principles. They can't be necessarily taken to the exclusion of the other principles we need to discuss, but they are principles that need to at least be considered in these kinds of questions. Matthew 22:39 encourages us to speak out against injustices or the abuse of power perpetuated by governments or another citizen. Um, but our concern primarily is with building a heavenly kingdom. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 also encourages us to pray for our leaders. And prayer has been mentioned a couple times. I'm curious how many of us really do that, uh, you know, really pray for our leaders. But that is something that God has also uh, commanded us to do. So those are pretty much, uh, you know, in summary, the, the texts that we have to deal with. And the scenarios then that you've been confronted with aren't necessarily, well, they're not explicitly referred to in Scripture. But we have these the handful of texts that at least kind of help us to put some boundaries uh, on things as we try to work through these uh, scenarios. So let's look at a, um, a few of these scenarios, at least the biblical ones. So we, we got the midwives one, midwife ones, um, and we have the Obadiah one, the Rahab one, and um, well, we'll just 
we'll just uh, start with uh, these ones. So here are some guiding principles for ethical choices that I think flow from one or some of these texts. I'm going to put these in the form of principles. I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, so eight principles, guiding principles, I'm calling them to sort of help us to work through these scenarios in light of the scriptural texts that we looked at. Number one, uh, the principle of divine sovereignty over government. So it doesn't necessarily answer the specifics of the question, but let's just remember, no matter what scenario we're encountering, that God is still in control in an ultimate sense. God is still in control in an ultimate sense. The second principle is the principle of human responsibility to order and justice. So this is the idea that God, in his sovereign plan, calls his people to stand up for the causes of, let's say, the proverbial widow and orphan, or the foreigner, or the stranger. So on one hand, we say, yep, God's in control. We don't just pay lip service to that. That's true. On the other hand, you, as God's people, are to be concerned with issues of injustice in the world. You're not allowed to just turn away and say, oh, that's God's sovereign plan. Some warlord in Somalia is wiping people out. Oh, well, God's sovereign. Somehow you have to balance both of those realities. You have to say, God's sovereign, but I'm also an agent of justice in this world, as much as you are equipped to speak into those kind of issues. Third, you have to take into consideration, at least, in light of the texts to pray for our leaders and to obey our leaders in Romans 13, the principle of testimony. Now, that's a broad principle, but minimally it means that when I do speak out against government, or if I do pick it or do whatever, I at least I, it's not my, my only ethical concern, but I do need to at least think about what is this going to say to the people I'm speaking out against about me? Now, not about me as an Aaron Rock, but about the Christ that, whose image I'm supposed to bear out into the world. So you do have to at least consider how is this going to impact for the po positive or the negative or neutrally my testimony. So that's just another principle to think about. A fourth principle is the principle of exhausted means. So when we look at the midwife scenario, they had no other option. It wasn't like they had three options, sort of categorize them, okay, well, we could do this. It's either kill the babies or don't kill them. Kill the babies or lie to the Pharaoh. So that's maybe different than having 18 different options at your disposal. You're not quite sure which the best one is. If you look at the Obadiah uh, situation, 1 Kings 18, again, li very limited options. So in situations where you've exhausted your means and you really only have one moral option, well, that's your option. And surely it would be hard to argue that turning the 100 prophets over to a tyrant to kill them all would be even an option for a Christian. So you've got, you got to take into consideration the principle of exhausted means. Do I have more than one option available to me? Have I exhausted all other means possible? Fifth, the principle of penalty. Um, I mean, you've got to consider the, the uh, implications of your choices for yourself. But if you're truly a selfless person, you should be far more concerned about the implications of um, a person's actions upon another human being. 
And so the principle of penalty, are you willing to take the penalty? What would the penalty be? Is it worth it? Uh, you know the old uh, saying, um, when you're in a conflict, is that a hill worth dying on? That's the kind of the idea there. Sometimes, yeah, it is a hill worth dying on. Sometimes to have your life taken to stand up for a cause or to defend someone else, yeah, it's worth it. Other times, it may not be. So just to create a ridiculous scenario, there's a proverbial widow out in the battlefield. She's surrounded by like 100,000 troops and they're all shooting at her. Do you run out there and save her knowing that there's like a 100% chance you're both going to die? No. But if there's the possibility that you might die, but also the possibility that person could be rescued, then yes, it is worth it. So the principle of penalty. And then, as we've mentioned many times, Susie mentioned in regard to the cosmetic argument, the principle of attitude. I mean, you do have to, you'd have to at least take into consideration your attitude toward the situation. I think in the taxation situation there, we have some very, very gracious men here that propose some uh, responses to us. And really what they demonstrated is, uh, uh, even if they didn't give us like a hardcore solution, is they demonstrated a peaceful attitude at least. And I mean, that's worth considering. What is our attitude towards some of these abuses we may see or witness? Principle of attitude. Uh, the second from last is the principle of model citizenship. Model citizenship doesn't mean doing everything you're always told. Sometimes it means pushing for change. Sometimes it means being a little bit of a rebel. Sometimes it means stepping outside the box. So the bottom, being a model citizen is a good thing, but it's not the only consideration to take into the mix. And the final principle, uh, if we actually believe in the power of prayer, is the principle of prayer. Now, you know, to some of these extreme situations, I mean, to the tax situation, yeah, you got some time to pray about it. Maybe the picketing, like in your situation, it's like, yeah, when what? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you're you're confronted with a situation at at that very time. You're trying to sort through a whole bunch of things at once. You don't really have time to necessarily pray. You just got to figure out how to act. I mean, this is really off topic, but um, so I'm exiting my subdivision today because there was a lot of cars in the one exit. So I drove around to the other and, there, and I, I come around the corner and there's this Indian lady outside of her van. And there's this guy down in front of her van doing push-ups on the road. <laughs> and I saw her coming around to try to see, and I, that's all I saw. I don't know if he stepped out or what he did, but he's down there doing push-ups and stuff. And he, he, you know, he's wearing like the black hoodie over his head and everything. And I rolled him like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm just looking under her van. I said, no, you're not. You're doing something stupid. Now get out of here. And this lady's like, what? what's he doing? I said, look, ma'am, just get back in your vehicle. This guy's up to no good. She's like, wow. I said, and I said, you, I'll call the police if you don't get out of here right now. Um, you know, and I was prepared to get up and clock the guy. I wasn't ready. To, I wasn't thinking about praying for him, but I think he was trying to stop her so that he could come around a mugger or something like that. Well, to be honest with you, I didn't even think about praying for the guy. I had no time to. And I was trying to process this extremely unusual <laughs> situation, you know, at 9 o'clock in the morning, 8.30 in the morning in my neighborhood. 
Um, but, you know, if the guy had jumped this woman, I would have jumped him. And I'm telling you, like it or lump it, I wouldn't even have thought about praying for the guy at that time. I would have been thinking specifically about how to deal with the nuts and bolts of the situation. And unless you're like really spiritual, you'd probably be thinking about the practicalities of it too, not necessarily praying for the person. <laughs> but if it's a situation like problems are unrolling in our government, the taxation rate's going up, or this ongoing problem with abortion, or yeah, well then you then you should be praying and um, you know dealing with the situation accordingly. So the, the, the takeaway is we don't just deal with it by human power and human might, but by the power of God that lives, you know, lives within us. So those are just some general principles. Again, uh, you know, if we had more time, we could sort of really get into some of these and unpack them. But those are some general principles that I think will at least push us a step or two ahead in terms of dealing with these kinds of very difficult matters in relationship to civil matters. Okay? So uh, I think we're... Probably, yeah, we're pretty much out of time. So I'll just thank you for, for coming for the past several weeks, and I hope that uh, even if you haven't had all your questions answered, that you've, you have a bit of a better framework to work through some of these issues with, and that as you confront some of these kinds of things yourself or have opportunity to be of help to other people that are struggling with different moral dilemmas, that you'll, you'll have the basic framework and to ask the right questions and, and just provide them with, um, you know, some good guidance. Okay. And uh, yeah, if you want to sign up for the teaching course, that begins two weeks from tonight. Okay. So thanks everybody. Have a good evening. Oh, thank you.